Welcome to The Waves, a podcast about gender, feminism, and doing it. Each week, you get a pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can knock it off of our minds. And this week, you have me, Shannon Paulus, a senior editor at Slate, covering science and health. And I'm speaking with Rachel Feltman, who is the executive editor of Popular Science and the author of the book, Been There, Done That, A Rousing History of Sex. If you are feeling down about the world right now, Rachel's book offers an excellent escape. It taught me all about why bats go down on each other, a funny myth about Cleopatra's alleged masturbation habits. Rachel also answers the question, why are even men? And she takes us through a thought experiment about how maybe all animal life started out very queer. One key thing this conversation gets at is how limited our idea of quote-unquote normal sex is. Flawed not just for cultural reasons, but also scientific ones. I hope you'll stick with us. We also have a special announcement about an upcoming Slate Live event. If you want to get up to date on everything happening with the Supreme Court right now, come to the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York on Thursday, June 23rd. Our colleagues from Slate will be unpacking all the news, and there will be a special slow burn taping. Head to slate.com slash Supreme Court to get your tickets now. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX is The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. So today I'm talking to Rachel Feltman. She is the executive editor of Popular Science and, of course, the author of the book, Been There, Done That, A Rousing History of Sex. Welcome to The Waves, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. So your book features on the cover a pair of human beings having some uh, rather athletic intercourse on the cover. <laughs> yes. Uh, but the history of sex uh, that's referenced in the subtitle encompasses both human sex and animal sex. One second in the book, I'm reading about the myth that Cleopatra used a vibrator full of bees. The next, you're telling me all about koala chlamydia. Why did you decide to make this a history of human and animal sex rather than picking one arena to focus on? Because there is so much going on there. So I love um, these subjects that are just like really integral to um, human life because I find it's a great way to surprise people and like surprise people with information that they didn't realize was going to be relevant to them. And that's really the way I love to tell stories about science. I started to think about the fact that we have so many misconceptions about sex, not just as it fits into our culture, but as evolutionary and biological phenomenon. And so then I was like, well, if I really want to do the whole history of sex and like talk about why sex exists and why it's 
so important. I have to talk about where it came from. Uh, it's one of those things that we we think of the way we have sex and the way we talk about sex and our feelings around sex to be so uniquely human, but that isn't necessarily true. And I just thought it would be so much fun to, um, as one way of kind of breaking through people's misconceptions about uh, how sex works and should work is really like making it clear how different uh, the experience of having sex and reproducing sexually uh, can be from one animal to another. I loved the part so much when you talk about homosexual interactions or same-sex interactions in other species, and you note that like same-sex interactions might seem kind of counterintuitive from an evolutionary perspective because you can't create a baby that way. There are actually actually are evolutionary reasons why having same-sex interactions might be beneficial in that one narrow way. And you note that there's a theory that primates some primates have same-sex interactions in order to bond with members of their community, which yes, that yeah. just like <laughs> I consider myself a very sex-positive, open-minded person. I've dated, I've been to college, all of that, and yet this just like clicked something in place in my head that I, in a way that like I hadn't thought of before, because we usually view like oh, sleeping around is like slutty or selfish or or like you're doing it for your pleasure, but like. The idea that part of having sex is just to create relationships or can be to create relationships. Sex is a very physically intense, often very enjoyable interaction that two or more people can have. And so, yeah, when you think about forming bonds and de-escalating conflict, it's easy to see how sexuality could can be really beneficial for a species. And it falls into the category of what we would call pro-social behaviors. It's like... Um, I was a theater kid, and when you think about, like, high school drama club, like, massage chains, it's like that. <laughs> the actual uh, sexual precociousness of your group may have varied a lot depending on where and when you were in high school, but the kind of just, like, very handsy, very cuddly, very flirty, very physical... When I think of bonobos, I think of laying all over my friends backstage and how that was just that was just what you did. You were just figuring things out. Friends just all wanted to snuggle with each other because we were like 15 and we all were like, you smell nice and I enjoy snuggling with you. And I don't really understand why that is, but it's fine because we're theater kids. So it's not weird. Yeah, that re that reminds me so much of like, one of the most intimate interactions I've had in my entire life was when I was getting ready for a middle school dance with other girls. And someone was like, I'm going to do your eyeliner. And she like pulls down the inside of my eyelid to like tight line that like little inner lid and just being like, wow, you're, you're like touching this really like interior piece of my body. <laughs> like, yeah, it wasn't yeah. sexual, but I can see that connection. What if like that's more on a spectrum with, like, casual sex or sex outside of, like, you know, monogamous relationships <laughs> than, than, like, this idea of, like, oh, like, going to go get some for me. <laughs> yeah, I think there's really something to that. And in the book, I talk about, you know, some other species where same-sex 
sexual interactions. Um, I mean, you do see that in bonobos. They do something called penis fencing, um, which is like juvenile males just literally like hanging from trees, swatting their penises at each other. Not that different, I think, from what like adolescent young men do. That sounds familiar. <laughs> but uh, there are also um, there are a few types of bats that like when it's like very crowded and uh, they have to huddle for warmth. You'll see a lot of this like male on male genital rubbing and licking. And um, some researchers think that it's just like they're literally stuck in such close quarters that it's like a way of keeping the peace. <laughs> They're just like, we're all stuck together, so let's all, everybody be chill. (laughs) Queerness doesn't need to have an evolutionary purpose in order to uh, deserve to exist. Queer people exist, and that means we deserve to exist. But I do think it's really weird that so many people are so confident that we need to explain the paradox of homosexuality and not the paradox of heterosexuality. (laughs) Um, You know, the assumption that we must have all started straight and something has allowed non-procreative sex and the desire for it to evolve. Why can't it be the other way around? Yeah, you try on this idea in the book what if every creature started out queer? And then, like, some of them somehow managed to narrow down their sex lives to this one much narrower set of preferences. Yeah, so there was a a study that came out a few years ago that I talk about a fair bit in the book um, that I really loved because it really is just a thought experiment. There's no way of proving this, but there's also no way of proving the way we tend to think about it, which is, like, sex evolved and that obviously meant that the binary sexes evolved and that was how sex worked that like male was attracted to female and they made babies this one paper and a few other researchers outside of that paper have said like well it would make just as much sense and maybe even more sense theoretically uh if when sexual reproduction first evolved, the default was like these amorphous, (laughs) sexually indiscriminate, you know, blobs being like, yeah, I'll sidle up next to this one and up next to that one. And sometimes that'll make a baby and sometimes it won't. And that, you know, maybe sexual dimorphism uh, evolved later and that sexual preference may have then evolved to like, make uh, sex have a higher likelihood of leading to reproduction. Yeah, it's just a really interesting way to think about it. And there are a lot of things I get into in the book that just boil down to, like, there are a lot of biases and um, assumptions baked into uh, the early natural sciences. And so a lot of things that people are very attached to as being like, just the way the world works, um, are really not. We have no way of knowing that's the world. That's the way the world works. It's just that that's what scientists in the 1800s felt comfortable saying was probably how the world worked. 
one piece of your book that I really appreciate is you debunk the common misconception that sexuality evolved in just like a straight line. And you talk about how our species history is a loop-to-loop of progression, regression, suppression, and exhibition. I really appreciated that point because it kind of hammers home this idea of like whatever you're doing or desiring that you maybe feels a little weird is just some expression of something that happened before, whether with humans or another species or or somewhere else in our past as animals. That was a really big uh, takeaway for me in researching and writing this book that so much of what we consider normal um, is just based on like what the cultural norms are right now. And those are so arbitrary. And when you look at cultures around the world, and when you look at the whole span of history, you see that it can really go any which way. um, And things can change so quickly. And they can also get stuck in one way of thinking for long enough that we think that's just like, what's normal. I mean, I think this is not like a, a, a revelatory hot take. Many People who are historians and are much smarter than me have, I think, pointed this out. But like a lot of what we think of as normal today is like from the Victorian era. Like there was kind of this this cultural reset. And one example, people ask me all the time when I bring up this point, like, so what's a place that was really progressive that is going to shock me? And I'm like, well, this shouldn't shock you and won't shock many listeners. But um, a lot of people in the U.S. don't know that... When Hawaii was a sovereign nation, pre-colonialism especially, it was very progressive, very sexually liberal, uh, and in terms of um, gender identity, too, uh, much more progressive than the continental U.S. today, for sure. And uh, European colonists were really horrified by a lot of what they saw there, and they um, interpreted those practices through a very Puritan, Christian, European, imperialist lens, and that really sucks. And you see that in, in a lot of indigenous cultures uh, where, you know, imperialism comes in and is like, oh, no, 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 Stop that. <laughs> We're going to take a break here. But if you want to hear more from Rachel and myself on another topic check out our Waves Plus segment. Today, Rachel and I are going to continue our conversation about her book and talk about why STIs, that's sexually transmitted infections, might be, in some cases, helpful. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, Slate Money, and, of course, this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, we're back. Rachel, I want to ask you a very important question that the book poses. Why even are men? <laughs> yes. Um, when my lovely agent, Jeff, uh, handed the book to an older male from the publishing industry at a, a, a book event recently, he opened it to that page and got very mad Pretty sure he literally yelled at my agent in the middle of a uh, book fair. So if that was you, I don't think you're going to like my book. It's true. You were right. Um, But yeah, why even are men? Um, While it definitely sounds like something I would just tweet after a bad day, uh, it is a like serious line of scientific inquiry because similar to, you know, that thought experiment of why does it actually make sense for us to be strictly heterosexual? Like, why not just hedge our bets and want sex all the time? So similar to that is posing this thought experiment that's like, wouldn't it be more efficient for every organism to have the ability to either carry or contribute to without carrying offspring um, or, you know, to lay eggs and to fertilize eggs? So basically, like, what what if, like, I could also dispense sperm from, like, some body part just as, like, a little convenience thing? Yeah, exactly. Like, why did we evolve to mostly, generally speaking, uh, though it is an oversimplification of how things work, why did we evolve to mostly be either people with uteruses and vaginas or people with testicles and penises? There's a reason Swiss Army knives exist. They are efficient, <laughs> get everything in one space. And, you know, of course, there are many um, organisms that are fully functionally hermaphroditic or that even can fully switch sexes, uh, like clownfish can, which I talk about in the book. We know it can be done. So the question is like, why isn't that just how it works? Because the organism that just contributes sperm is not actually contributing much energy-wise to reproduction. Seems like maybe a waste of <laughs> waste of space. Many men are not wastes of space, but from a biological perspective, you wonder, why is this how it works? So one of the most common answers to this that scientists offer is that um, it's because the existence of sexual selection helps further improve a species' genetic fitness, meaning how many variations of different genes are available and how many of those are ones that set you up to live long enough to reproduce and have healthy offspring, compete for resources, and... Uh, There's this idea that, you know, we have natural selection, which is just literally, do you survive long enough to create offspring uh, that survive? And do you make more of them (laughs) than other members of your species? And so do your traits get passed on more? And then there's sexual selection, which is like, is there stuff that makes you more likely to get picked as a mate? And so the question of like how important that is 
to a species thriving is a really interesting one. Um, And there was one study that I really enjoyed that basically uh, studied beetles for a bunch of generations because you can sure make a lot of beetles really quickly. And um, in some of them, they took away sexual selection by like really skewing the female to male beetle ratio. And in others, they really inflated that ratio so that the female beetles had like tons of choice. And then they took the resulting beetles from that experiment and they inbred them for like several generations. And inbreeding, of course, like amplifies any shortcomings you have genetically. And they found that the more sexual selection they had, the longer the beetles could survive incestuously from generation to generation, which is, it's kind of bizarre now that I'm saying it out loud, that like that's our, that's the best experiment I've ever seen to demonstrate why the sexes evolved. All of that is to say that there is this idea that maybe we have multiple sexes because it's good in terms of genetic diversity to have a non-gestating sex that can like live fast, fuck once, die young. (laughs) But we don't know. We still don't really know why men exist, but that's one idea. (laughs) The way you phrased it in the book was that perhaps males can serve as an evolutionary doodle pad, which I really love. And I think this in concert with the thought experiment about homosexuality gives us this perspective where maybe maleness and straightness are just these, like, interesting accessories that have evolved. And it's just that they're culturally the norm or a norm right now or seen as, like, something powerful. But in reality, it's it's possible. Like, again, you're, we're talking about thought experiments. You can come from the view of, like, maleness and straightness don't need to exist. The the fact that so much cultural nonsense has been built up around what may have been just like a really random, quirky path for evolution to take in terms of how reproduction works is fascinating. And also, I realize, very upsetting for people. <laughs> I, I definitely, um, you know, am very used to uh, getting emails saying that Uh, the way I talk about sex and gender is unscientific. But I think that relies on like a real misunderstanding of what science is and how little we actually understand about how sex and gender works. And also how much science is about posing theories and exploring them and saying, what if we've been thinking about it all wrong? All right, before we head out, we want to give you some recommendations. Rachel, what are you loving right now? I just received a book I pre-ordered ages ago that is an anthology of like weird horror uh, by authors who are trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, and the proceeds go to um, protecting the rights and interests of trans kids in Texas. And it's called Your Body is Not Your Body. Um, I have not started it yet, but it's beautiful. 
<laughs> I love uh, weird experimental fiction um, with like a, just a touch of body horror, even better if it's queer. So um, I'm really excited to dive into that. And it's for a great cause. So I definitely recommend that people uh, check it out. I'm going to recommend something many listeners may have heard of already, but Spindrift Seltzers. Um, it's seltzer made with a little bit of juice. And importantly, it is a little bit more expensive than your average can of seltzer. It feels extra fancy compared to your average can of seltzer. And we're just on a, we're always on a big seltzer kick in my household, but especially as the weather warms up, um, I'm trying to drink less. I'm trying to enjoy being outside with a special beverage more. And it's just so satisfying to try the different flavors. And I brought a pack of Spindrifts to a dinner party I was at the other week, along with a bottle of wine. And it just felt really nice to like have a palate cleanser to pass around between alcoholic drinks. I love Spindrift. I don't know what how they do it. It is so tasty and fancy. <laughs> it's awesome. And then also bonus points if you pour it into like a beer glass or a cocktail glass and you're like, I'm having a real drink now. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus, that's me, is our editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>